There was an English teacher that was teaching his class in grammar. And so he put out there to one of the students, Sam, a sentence. He said, Sam, what is it if I say the following? Open quote, I love you, comma, you love me, comma, he loves me, question mark, close quote. Sam thought for a minute and then he replied, well, teacher, that sounds like one of those love triangles where somebody gets shot. Truly, it does, and truly, we are looking into the heart of the matter as we hear the words of Jesus talk about adultery and divorce and oaths. Jesus is teaching on Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, and he's teaching in contrast to the rabbinical teachings of his day. What were those teachings like? What were people receiving from the rabbis, from the Pharisees, from the scribes, from the lawyers? Well, a little background on how it would work. From the age of 6 to 10 years old, students, children would be enrolled in Torah school, the first five books, and in that time they would memorize all five books of the Bible. Then from that point on, from 10 to 14 years old, if you were one of the good students, you would go on to memorize the rest of the Bible, the Psalms and the prophets and all the other writings that were there. So that by the time age 14 came, you, if you were one of those better students, had memorized the entire Old Testament. And then if you were the best of the best of the best, you would be attached to a rabbi. And a rabbi then would give you his commentary, his teaching about those things. He would teach you as a student how to live out the scriptures based upon his words. There are many writings that you can find that say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that. And so those are the teachings that Jesus was teaching about the Torah, that he was correcting those things. What were those teachings like, you might ask? I have a quote on the screen from Jacob Neuser, who is a first century Jewish scholar. He says this about the teachings of the rabbis. It was not indeed wholly devoid of moral significance, nor is it impossible to find here and there among the debris of it a noble thought, but it was occupied a thousandfold more with Levitical minutiae, about mint and anise and cumin, and the length of fringes and the breadth of phylacteries, and the washing of cups and platters and the particular quarter of a second when the new moons and the Sabbaths would begin. We might call it inadequate interpretations of the Scriptures. And as Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount, the question in the mind of his disciples is this. Since Jesus' disciples, then and now, received their righteousness from him as a gift, how then do we live as salt and light in this world? And so I invite you to open up your worship folders to look at the gospel today, to take out a Bible, to turn to Matthew chapter 5, whichever you prefer. And we're going to look at these three sections today like that. The section on adultery, the section on divorce, the section on oaths.
And Jesus says this to us, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We need to look at some of those words that Jesus uses. First of all, that word looks in the original language. It means a continuous look. Not a glance, not a moment. A continuous look, a glare, a stare, and a contemplation about lustful intentions. John Maxwell says this about lustful intentions. It is any thought that if you actually carried it out would be a sin. Jesus said anyone who looks at someone that way, another woman who has that desire, who contemplates lustful ideas, has already committed adultery in their heart. But remember what Jesus says, for it is out of the heart that evil desires and thoughts come. The other word to look at is that word that Jesus uses for stumble. If your right eye causes you to stumble, the Greek word there is skandaleia. Of course, we know what word we get in our English language from that. Scandal. It means to be caught into a trap. And so it is if your right eye or your right hand causes you to be caught in a trap to bring scandal. Jesus said the remedy for that is then to cut it off. There is radical danger that Jesus is saying in our thoughts and in the things that we conceive in our hearts and in our minds. And this is a radical means in order to eradicate those things. The right eye, the right hand, the best eye, the strongest hand in Jewish teaching. And Jesus says then to remove them. Would it be painful to do these things in our lives? Would it be painful to pluck out an eye? Would it be painful to cut off our hand? Of course it would. What Jesus is saying to us, it will not be painless in our lives to turn away from the desires and lusts of our hearts. But if we don't, it will lead to worse things. Sin can always lead to worse things if it is pursued even to the end that we might lose our faith. Jesus says to us, it matters as followers of His, as disciples, what we look at and what we choose to look at. It is important and we need to keep in check our heart we need to keep in check those desires and those things that we lust after. So as people who are to be of salt and light in the world, the question that Jesus would put to us is, do we desire in our lives then the purity that the Word lays out for us? The purity that we are called to in right relationship. The purity that comes from understanding our hearts and our desires, and to set them on those things that are above. In the second section, Jesus says this to us. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife 
must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The teachings in those days were simple. You basically gave this certificate, somewhat like a pink slip, to your wife. The teachings of the rabbis were based on Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. I'm going to put that on the screen. It says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. The rabbis would debate on the words here what it actually meant that she did something indecent. Some of the interpretations were that maybe she didn't keep the house clean enough. Maybe the meal and the food wasn't cooked well. Maybe she looked wrong at him. And they debated over these things, deciding what would be the right thing in order to divorce. We need to remember in this day and in this age that women were considered property. And for another man to take another man's property was a crime of property. The commandments provided that this should not happen, especially those that talked about coveting, because they lumped coveting the neighbor's wife in with his cattle, with his fields, with his house, with other property. The result was the teachings of the rabbis in those days said that the most important thing that you could do is to divorce in the right way so as not to cause any property violations of another man. It wasn't the fact that you divorced. Divorce was very rampant in Jesus' day because of these men just simply giving this pink slip and letting people go. With nothing in their heart, remember Jesus said it is because of the hardness of your heart. And so it was that we didn't <coughs> excuse me, violate property laws. That was the most important thing. But Jesus teaches us that that is indeed a problem. To treat another person as property, to treat another person as less than human. Jesus comes to dignify all of us as human beings. Human beings that God has sent Him into the world to redeem. That we are not to simply throw away people in our relationships as we throw away so many things. Things that we have every day. Things that are now designed to be disposed of rather than repaired. Jesus tells us not so God's people. He states again and again in his ministry what God's design and what God's purpose is for marriage. He's not giving us a license to skate around these points. Sin causes us to abuse God's design. It did then. It does now. And as people of salt and light, we are to shine in this world to be different than others. We are to have scriptural words in our lives and in our relationships. Words like reconcile and forgive. Words like counsel and value 
and cherish in our relationships with one another. Jesus comes that we might know true interpretations on the Scriptures, not those that were prevalent and not those that we would like to impose upon it. And then in that third section on oaths, Jesus says the following, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You see, in Jesus' day, there was a hierarchy that existed as the rabbis taught based upon your oath, based upon your vows, based upon what you swore by. Each thing carried a different weight. Each thing carried a different validity. Each one had a different binding power. If you were to swear an oath by heaven, that carried one weight and one binding. An oath by the earth carried another. An oath by Jerusalem, still another. Jesus is saying to them and to us, don't make promises to God, which is what vows and oaths are, and don't make them if you don't intend to keep them. Because such things result in problems for us. First and foremost, taking an oath saying that I swear by God or I swear by these things that I will do this or that or this or that will happen is that we are trying in our lives to lock God into what we want. It denies God's overall control. Remember that we are told in the Scriptures, do not say I will do this or that, but say if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. To realize that God is sovereign in our lives, that He is over all things, that His hand is on all things in our lives, and that if it be His will, we will prosper, we will do these things, we will be blessed by Him. Not on our own strength, not by our own power, but by His will. Also, that these things are abused then and now, that vows that were made... Vows of marriage that are abused in our day and age. Vows where we might say those words in a courtroom. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That we should be careful in our words. That we should be careful to keep those things that we have promised. So that we may be true to our words. And then finally, how we use our words is of utmost importance in our lives. Do you remember Aesop's fable of the fox and the raven? How the fox used flattering words to the raven in order that it would open its mouth to sing and drop the food that the fox wanted. So it is that we as people of salt and life need to be careful in our lives not to use clever words to manipulate people, to manipulate relationships, to try and avoid the truth when we're speaking to people. But we need to speak that truth in love, not hurting or harming our neighbor while we do so, but holding to the truth that we know the Scripture to be. Are these hard sayings to hear from Jesus? 
as he addresses the heart of the issue, our hearts? Yes, they are hard. These are things that we as people of Jesus must wrestle with in our lives. They are not easy. There are struggles that we have to deal with, but we are not left alone to deal with them totally on our own. We have the Word of God to give us that direction. We have the Spirit that has come upon us in our baptism to guide us and aid us. We wrestle with those two things in our lives, that word of simul justus, epicotter, saint and sinner at the same time. That is our lot in life as followers of Jesus. We wrestle that we are forgiven, we are holy, we are pure, and we are loved by grace and by Jesus solely alone. But we also wrestle with the fact that we abuse the word of God, that we are self-centered people, that we are sinful people. We know that our faith is a gift. We know that our salvation is all from Jesus. But being called as disciples to be salt and light, we also know that we face a narrow road, a hard walk in this life in order to follow where Jesus asks us to follow. Do we stumble and do we fall down? Do we break what we have been asked to do? Always. But is there grace sufficient for our failures and our sins? Does Jesus lift us up again? Does he revisit us with his love and forgiveness? Yes, again and again, as he told Peter 70 times 7, we are forgiven over and over again so that he might lift us up to walk this narrow road, to be salt and light in this world, to shine his truth and his hope knowing that the way that he has called us to be is the way of life, of truth, of peace, and of hope. May we ever follow in his footsteps where Jesus leads us by his grace, by his love, and by his spirit. Amen.